for September 8th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 323. Thumbs up to all the Duck Brothers out there. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, here with a panel that includes Ben Adams. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We're glad every time you can join us. And Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hi, Matthew. Hello, Benjamin. <laughs> Hello, Peter. How, how are you? Why are I'm, we... I'm doing quite well. I want to be... I'm, as, as we slowly approach the re-release of... Uh, well, not release. The release of the next season of Downton Abbey, I'll become increasingly formal in my <laughs> greetings of you at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> Lovely. These crumpets are not like the crumpets we used to have. <laughs> Easy. There's a lot of weeks left. <laughs> <laughs> Says the Dowager Countess. Uh, you, can't, you can't go full Dowager in September. You gotta, you gotta wait. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, yeah, you gotta hold it, hold it off. Uh, you can't watch, um, yeah, exactly. You can't watch Downton until it, uh, till it comes out in the United States, unless there were some sort of massive internet working computer network that, uh, you know, where you could get little, literally everything, you know, at the minute that it is created or thought about. But Matt, uh, that would be illegal, and people would not get illegal things on the internet ever. <laughs> Sorry, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, come back to that. We'll come back to that in in just a minute. But uh, in the um, uh, in the question of the week, let's uh, we're going to have a uh, a commemorative question. Uh, the question this week, in honor of of the late beloved. Uh, uh, often reviled, in fact, or theatrically reviled, and no one was more gleeful than her when she was theatrically reviled by, uh, by people. Uh, great provocateur, raconteur, uh, tour de force comedienne uh, Joan Rivers. In honor of, of uh, the late Joan Rivers panel, can we talk? <laughs> So, uh, in alphabetical order, as is our custom, Ben, can we talk? <laughs> we can talk. <laughs> and uh, I guess Pete. We'll start. <laughs> <laughs> it's an open-ended question, Matt. There's going to be more than just a, a short answer. Oh, sorry. I thought it was yep. a firm. It was like yes or no. It was like yes or no, Ben. Can we? No, I'm, I'm using my – so I, I'm in, in law when you're talking to an appellate panel, you're, you're taught whenever you're asked a yes or no question, you start with yes, comma, whatever the rest of your answer is. Otherwise, you'll annoy the person, who, the, the judge who's asking you the question. So you have to answer the question first and then you can explain your answer. Uh-huh. So I'm just, just practicing good uh, litigation uh, practice here. So even if you disagree, so it's like, is the sky red? Yes, you're an idiot. No, you can or, say no, it, oh, but it's I just see. if it's a yes or no question, you should start with a yes or no. You shouldn't launch into your explanation, which is diluting your yes or no answer. You, you, you should be saying either yes or no. That's a good practice for everyone, isn't it? it it's an excellent. Yeah, it's very good. That way they can inter- interrupt you and, you know, if, they, if they feel like because they're the judge and they get to kind is, of do it. Is there a name for doing that or is it just sort of a established general uh, rhetorical there practice? probably is, but I, I don't know if there's like a technical name for it. It's just a good practice. Many, many people do not follow but it's just what you're it's the kind of the textbook way of of answering the question cool i'm gonna start using that on the podcast that's a great (laughs) idea 
but uh, but we can talk specifically about uh, I guess what 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 are we wearing tonight? Because that that's kind of what my first association <laughs> with Rivers is uh, <laughs> is is her on the the red carpets. Um, I, I don't have a whole lot of exposure to Joan Rivers as a uh, like a uh, otherwise comedian or. Uh, you know, stand up or actress or anything like that. Most of my association with Joan Rivers is her on the red carpet asking people about what they're wearing, uh-huh. who they're wearing, who they're wearing. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, more, more to the point, who they're wearing. Uh, but she, but I, but to her credit, she was always much more entertaining than the average just random like pretty face that they put out doing that. She was always kind of out there and crazy about what was going on, which I enjoyed. Yeah, she. Um yeah, she was such a pioneer. I read recently, I've been reading back through the New Yorkers archives since they've made them all free and available. So like go if you've ever heard of like a good New Yorker article that you wanted to read, go get it before they lock it down behind the the like a New York Times style metered paywall. Um, you know, dump it into Instapaper or whatever and uh Read it at your leisure. I was reading a, uh, a profile of Sarah Silverman uh, back before her Comedy Central show uh, was uh, starting to be produced. And, you know, it struck me that Joan Rivers really paved the way for someone like, like Sarah Silverman for that persona and the kind of the provocation uh, in, involved in that, I mean, in that persona, right? Like she was... She was uh, she was funny. She was Joan Rivers was being funny professionally when those when you know the other like spokesmodel presenters of of E News and and uh, the other entertainment outlets were you know not not born yet. <laughs> I don't think that that's just incidental or quite coincidence. I, I think that I've heard more than one person describe the relationship between Sarah Silverman and Joan Rivers as one of mentorship. Huh. Uh, and I don't know how much you don't necessarily have to be very hands on or very present in someone's life to be called a mentor. Obviously, but like she, I think I think there might be you know the, the micro history of Joan Rivers. If you were to sort of spin it out, I think would involve a lot of major comedians. Kathy Griffin is another uh, you know public figure who is uh, studied a lot at the feet of Joan. Rivers. Uh, and it's interesting because, of course, Joan Rivers' big mentor was Johnny Carson. And so there's a whole generation of female comedians who are kind of like the, uh, the, you know, the Aristotle to the Johnny Carson Socrates, right? Which is interesting huh. to think that Joan Rivers is this is – this, because uh, if you want to think about sort of microhistory and the past of, uh, of knowledge and expertise, particularly in comedy, which is not really an academic field where things are kind of written down and held in these tomes that people consult, things are passed down through relationships. Uh, it's just interesting that there's a lineage, right? And there's a, there's a really grand lineage that Joan Rivers is a node of between a lot of people, you know, like Rodney Dangerfield you know, was a friend of hers and, and a bunch of other stuff like that. She's on the Ed Sullivan show, you know, things like that. Sorry, Ben, I jumped into your section. This is your, your, your say, you, you wanted to ask, talk about what people are, are yeah, wearing. Yeah, so Ben, who are you wearing? Uh, so I am wearing, uh, actually, I'm wearing my, still my golf clothes since yeah. I, uh, I, I've had the, the fortune of playing 36 holes this afternoon or in the morning. Wow. So, uh, but no, I am wearing a, a polo shirt that I, acquired from a bar in philadelphia so <laughs> they, they sell polo shirts in bars in philadelphia <laughs> it was technically it's technically for the the staff there but i went there enough that i knew the waiters and when i was leaving i was like i need to get one of those polo shirts and i was able to to buy one off of the uh the, the staff there wrangle What's the, can you yeah. plug the name of the bar uh, it is the New Deck Tavern in uh, off of Penn's campus with uh, Quizzo on Wednesday nights. Uh, everyone should go. It's fun. If enough of you guys go there, maybe next time Ben stops by, they'll ask him for an autographed picture to put on the wall. Be like, <laughs> do the do the right thing, Ben Adams style. Exactly. <laughs> How about you guys? What? Are, who are you wearing? 
Uh, oh, I'm wearing uh, City Sports. I just came in from a run, and so I'm wearing a sweat-soaked blue City Sports Boston t-shirt and thrice-striped Adidas gym shorts. Uh, in 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 uh, in what is it? I don't know. I don't remember the heraldic term for white, but I know that the black is sable, right? So it's uh, it's yeah. And I'm wearing uh, I'm wearing Brooks Ghost running shoes, which I enjoy. They're fairly new, so uh, biodegradable materials. Brooks Ghosts. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Silver or white is called uh, argent, argent or argent. Oh, so white is called argent. Okay, because yeah. it's like silver. Got it. Yeah, silver, silver, white, gold or yellow is is or. You know, blue azure, red jules, uh, say black sable, and and so on. Yeah, I'm I'm wearing like uh, more polyester than than I usually am because I'm I'm wearing some like jogging shorts here uh, from the uh, the fine champion brand. Uh, I'm sure purchased at a Costco. And uh, and uh, in t-shirt, the t-shirt manufacturer is a company called Alternative Apparel. Um, <laughs> who are I guess anti-American <laughs> apparel, uh, but it's a uh, it's a shirt from a uh, relatively short-lived music magazine called Paste Magazine that I used to get and that I liked a lot because. Um, they uh, they would include a CD sampler, a full length, you know, LP length CD sampler with every issue and introduce. And I usually would buy two or three records from the the CD sampler. And they they introduced me. I don't know, Pete, if you ever got into this band or if I just played you this one song, uh, but. Um, the uh, uh, the the band was called the Weepies, and the song was called "Gotta Have You." Uh, the chorus went: "No amount of coffee, no amount of crying, no amount of whiskey, no amount of wine, no, 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 nothing else will do. I gotta have you." Uh, and I once played it for you, or something like that, and you said, "Wait, wait, wait, hold up! Did she really just rhyme crying?" With wine, like <laughs> wine. That was, that was my reaction right now, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, at least you're, at least you're consistent, right? Yeah, it's yeah. It's a pure, it's a peer-reviewed, repeatable experiment. <laughs> It'll produce the same. And the answer is yes. <laughs> and it was a dubious slant rhyme of some sort. That perhaps, I don't know. That doesn't qualify as slant rhyme. I think it qualifies as bad rhyme. I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> or non non rhyme. I mean, non, yes, rhyme that isn't rhyme. rhyme I mean, non rhyme is rhyme when the end of words don't sound the same. It's not even really. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even really assonance. We talked about this on the TFT podcast where we talk about pop music and pop music lyrics a lot, right? Like a lot of the American rock and roll tradition comes out of the American South and, and a lot of the times in various uh, dialects, various Southern dialects, the final consonants are dropped or there's more or are de-emphasized or are kind of leveled uh, to a sort of generic stop. And, um, and they don't, and so they don't. They the things with assonant vowels actually sound like they sound like they rhyme, and that's kind of uh, become the practice, I guess, in in pop music. But I I do agree that crying and wine takes it too far, if only because it's not the same. I and uh, I uh, like that diphthong and the the and the I vowel and wine aren't the aren't really the same. I mean, crying is uh, is. I don't know. Is there a word crine? Um, C-R-I-N-E, like crime? Well, while I Wikipedia that, let, let me ask you, Pete, whether, whether it's about rhyme or about anything else. Can we talk? 
Yes, we can. And we can talk more about more things because of trailblazers like Joan Rivers (laughs) liberated the culture. I I tweeted, I made a couple, I've been coming up with Joan Rivers comments, you know, since she passed. Uh, Spoiler alert, or not, it's not a spoiler. Uh, It's alert. Uh, This podcast is being filmed, is being recorded a little bit ahead of time of when we usually record the podcast, and Joan Rivers just died. Like, that news just broke recently. So it's still fairly fresh. Today, it's Um, the morning, yeah, this morning uh, is is the day that we're, we're recording the podcast, the, the day of Joan Rivers' passing. Yes, indeed. And one of the things I said was that uh, it, to remind people that Joan Rivers and Don Draper were contemporaries, and it was very much to her credit that he would have hated her. Right? That she sort of, if you think about, uh, if you think about the stifling, uh, the stifling gender culture that is portrayed in the show Mad Men, right? Which I don't know. I'm sure it doesn't really resemble reality all that much, but you know, it's well researched. It certainly has a myth to it. But uh, from what I've known, talking to my parents who were like children at the time, right, in, in their late, in their sort of in their tween years, as we would have called them, uh, uh, you know, as we call them, but not as they would have called them, right? Like this was a time when it was not generally okay to just go on TV and talk about anything that you wanted, and there was a sense of aggressive decorum that uh, at least in, in certain public circles, it seems that there isn't really any more. And there was a process over the course of, you know, the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and today, like any good radio format, where it sort of like loosened and spread out and, and sort of enlarged and contracted at various times around various areas. And Joan Rivers is just one of those voices who just could never be contained. Unlike Ben, I'm, I'm a bit more familiar with her stand-up work and her comedy work. I love her episode of Louie, where she talks to Louis C.K., you know, about sort of hitting bottom, about sort of running into people on the way down in the comedy business and about just the craft and her dedication to the craft. Um, I mean, she really is somebody who stretched out the conversation, who enlarged the way that people talk. You you go back and you watch an old Joan Rivers routine from the 60s or the 70s or whatever. I, t- and- I put one out. on. You can look on Overthinking It's Facebook yeah. page from uh, from Thursday, September 4th. We, uh, it happens to be my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. We... Um, uh, we posted on the Overthinking Facebook page uh, something from the Ed Sullivan show. That is, a, that's a really great three minutes of of talking about about being an old maid at the age of like twenty four. Yeah, yeah. The the it's uh, something like irony is there, right? That, that huh. this is the clip that lasts from her twenties about the anxiety of her aging, and then of course you know her her old age is an old age that no one else has. Right, she, she, Joan Rivers's elderly years are uh, almost a, a novel. They're a novel creation in humanity of kind of how to approach the notion of aging, right? And, and it's insightful. I mean, people make fun of it a lot because she had all this plastic surgery, but you know, she she doesn't really create the idea of an eighty-one-year-old woman, right? When you see the images of her this year recently, right? Yeah. There's something else. There's a theater of identity. There's a performativity to it that is, uh, and, and Joan Rivers is linked to performativity, right? Comes out of Greenwich Village. I loved the one I'm reading about her even on Wikipedia. One little stray hit on her Wikipedia page is that when she was uh, a young performer in Greenwich Village in her 20s, she performed in a play in which she played one half of a lesbian couple in the early 60s, and the other half of the lesbian couple was a then-unknown Barbara Streisand. <laughs> right? So, like, just sort of a... Ma- and, and you listen to this routine now, this routine for this, and it sounds like something that, that a stand-up comic could 
put out there today. Obviously, the numbers are wrong, and you know the uh, the social pressures are a bit different. But just the aggressiveness and the way that it kind of challenges you to hear what it's saying, the style of delivery. Mm. Um, I mean, it is. I don't think anybody has innovated too much past what Joan Rivers does in the way that she speaks frankly about subjects. You know, if you watch the, the clip from her on Jimmy Fallon just back in March, you know, just just the way that she attacks the subjects. I mean, there's a bit of the kind of like Borscht Belt old-timey stand-up to when she talks about, you know, she makes ethnic jokes. I think she calls uh, she calls Jimmy Fallon uh, ethnic because he cries. Because he calls him, you're an ethnic, you're an Irishman <laughs> because you cry. Huh. Um, but uh, other than that, it's just like, it's just, she's just so aggressive. Remember, remember, just, remember, Remember when the Irish were not white? I, yeah, you know, my dad <laughs> reminded me of it every day, every St. Patrick's Day and every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, she just she just has a way of using the power of the podium, the power of the microphone in stand-up to slice through the resistance. Maybe the resistance that exists on our own minds, the existence that exists around ourselves, right? Like to talk about difficult subjects and, and not about kind of – and I say difficult subjects because I can't cut through the netting the way that Joan Rivers can. And when I say it, it sounds like an after-school special that we're talking about. Yeah. But it's really like – you know. It's a shame that, you know, she, this thing, like the stuff that has happened this week that we can't really talk about and aren't really going to talk about, I would have loved to hear more about what Joan Rivers had to say about it. Because I feel like she would have had some very incisive, you know, not insightful, but insightful as well, but incisive things to say. Well, uh, what's the relationship between incisive and insightful? That's a a very interesting question, right? Because the, like, the meta point of a lot of that boundary-pushing comedy, uh, when it's done you know, sincerely with, with, uh, sort of social purpose is, is to reveal the ways in which, uh, pieties, um, perpetuate established systems of privilege. Right. Right. And the way, the way in which sort of social norms, the deck, the deck, the, the deck is stacked or the deck is stacked or, uh, cry and whine. Um, the, the deck is stacked, uh, in favor of, uh, you know, the people who already enjoy privilege in terms of the social norms that are, that are then current. Right. Of course, though, then the word privilege itself is so loaded now with specific ideas of who's privileged and who isn't that then you can get in there and you can cut into that. Right. And then Joan Rivers cuts into that, too, by her talk about things that are you know, deemed inappropriate to talk about because of the, you know, the, the ideologies of uh, – playing field leveling, right? Um, you know, the idea that you're not, I mean, that she, she could probably say a bunch of stuff about the, the whole, all the scandals this week that nobody else could say because they would violate all of these moral offenses that are associated, right, with, with this whole big thing. And she would be able to get through that. It's, again, I can't talk about it. I can't even say, can we talk? We can't talk as well as Joan Rivers can talk. No, yeah. That's and, the answer to that question. But we do talk, yeah. we do talk better because she talked before us. Yeah, it's a question. Yeah, that, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, all right. Let me ask myself. Can we talk? Yes, we can talk to ourselves. Uh, I, I ask myself and I answer the question of the week myself. I find, uh, I mean, because I work as an actor and I'm constantly uh, learning dialogue, learning audition pieces, I find that I talk to myself out loud a lot. I mean, and it's not really talking to yourself, I guess, if you're like reading something, uh, reading something aloud. But but I don't know. I don't know uh, if either of you can we talk about this. Like, I don't know if talking out loud to yourself is sort of a part of your process or a part of your 
your your like writing process or creative process at all. But for me, it definitely is. Like when like in college, when I would write papers at night, um, I would I would leave the the room that my roommate was sleeping in because of course I like I for whatever reason only did homework at one in the morning. I only did it when everyone else had gone to bed. I guess because because don't let them see you sweat. I suppose. Um, I would actually go out into the hall and pace up and down. Uh, I pace up and down outside the outside the dorm room uh, and talk out my paper to myself, just because I'm so like auditory that that hearing the words out loud was um, was important to me. I don't know. Do I do either of you do that, Ben? Do you ever like write a like a complicated legal argument and have to kind of hear it out loud before you know whether it makes any sense or not? I do. There's kind of two ways. Kind of at the front end, I'll find if I'm still kind of struggling to figure out how to explain something, I find it's easier to to just start talking as if I was explaining it to somebody like across a you know a, a bar stools or something. How to explain the concept? It's much easier to think about telling somebody that than think about writing that. Uh, and that's kind of the dialogue. And then on the back end, proofreading is much easier reading out loud. Uh, even to the point of actually pronouncing punctuation marks, uh, because in legal writing the the punctuation kind of matters, and so you you pronounce you as you're writing you'll it can be very helpful to read the sentence and then write period space you know and then start the next sentence comma ex- but you know whatever the punctuation that doesn't matter the second amendment is perfectly comprehensible with with the punctuation <laughs> is that the one where it's like kennedy and stalin and bikini dancing i forget how that sentence goes but i think you can see the graphic um yeah i talk when i proofread when i get tired what wait, what is it ben oh, i was gonna say yeah the, the whole kennedy and stalin thing that's the that's the oxford comma of course yes 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 which is which is what separates us from the animals literally it's what makes the difference between uh, <laughs> she traveled with her children, a dog and a cat, and she traveled with her children, a dog and a cat. Yeah, that does separate us from the animals. <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm the same way. A lot of the stuff, even, even stuff that's not that, that difficult to parse, but just sort of steps in argumentation. And, and I don't know, also, like, if you're dealing with rhetoric at all, so much of it is, is how it sounds. Even in, even in written prose that's going to be read silently, uh, you, can, you can achieve rhetorical effects um, that are auditory effects, but that don't, uh, that don't necessarily come naturally when you're composing, composing silently. I don't know, Pete, do you do something similar uh, just when you're tired? Well, yeah, I, I slip into speaking out loud when I'm tired as a way of kind of maintaining my focus. Uh, I, I, could, I also speak out loud when I'm doing a lot of tasks in a row because it, it's basically a tool against being overwhelmed by circumstances because if I hear my own voice, it sort of guides me through the darkness, right? It's like, oh, okay, I can just follow my own voice. And, uh, and, and I trust my own voice is saying the right thing, so I'll just do what I'm saying, and then it'll be fine. Um, probably because in these are situations where things are so stressful that I sort of dissociate a little bit, and I kind of lose touch with myself. And it's like, well, I can talk my way out of the cave, right, and like talk my way back into my own body, if that makes sense. I don't know if you've ever had that sort of experience 
Um, maybe it's just me and, and my own fun relationship with anxiety, but talking can, can kind of reground a little bit in what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's physical, right? Like it's not just, it's not just intellectual. There's an aspect of the intellectual, but, but more importantly, there's an aspect of the, of the physical of your body doing something, performing an action, performing a task of your muscles moving in certain ways, you know, like, yeah. uh, and that's, that really sort of, that can bring you back, you know, when you're, when you're freaking out about something or when i am anyway yeah the tactile experience of language is something that can reconnect the you know the notion of the mind as a as a non-body thing with the body as a physical experience of the Mm -hmm. world so we can uh, we can talk we can talk about what we're wearing we can talk about more things than we used to be able to talk about uh, without fear of reprisals, and uh, we can talk to ourselves even. Um, so uh, for that, we have Joan Rivers to thank, and uh, you know, in in pace requiescat. Uh, the uh, the subject of this podcast is not. <laughs> The uh, the recent crime and the recent release of stolen stolen digital images uh, that happened last week. We're not going to talk about that. It's something that we can't talk about, right? There's no way. There's no w- good way to talk about it. It's just it's all downside. Um, yeah. you know, we're, we're participating in the biggest pop culture event of the week by avoiding talking saying what we really think you're, about what's going on exactly you're welcome <laughs> yeah, you're welcome everybody <laughs> if you want to hear someone's opinion about that particular topic uh you can turn everywhere else literally on the internet um but uh you know as without actually addressing specifically the the um the sort of theft that, well, various kinds of criminal activity, you know, there are a lot of analogies you can draw to different kinds of, of, of physical world crimes. Um, the, uh, the, the importance of photographs, right, and the, the sort of ascendancy, I, 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 sh- I say ascendancy, it's not like photographs were ever not important, uh, not ascendant since the time that, they've, uh, that, th- that they were invented, but the, but the uh, ubiquity of photography, uh, cell phone photography and stuff like that is an interesting, um, is an interesting topic. So, so let's, let's take it, let's take as our topic this week, sort of photographs in general and the place of photographs in our life, which is a subject that is sort of ripe for, for overthinking. And I want to start with a, uh, a listener email that we got, um, from Mark from LA, uh, Mark from LA wrote an email, uh, that was suggesting a theory about going back to our, uh, our discussion of the back to the future, vanishing children in front of the well, uh, the Marty McFly is vanishing family, um, Photograph and uh, in in a long a long email which I won't uh, read all of Mark from LA posited that that um, because uh, in Back to the Future the space time continuum seems to tend to want to correct towards itself seems to tend towards the restoration of an original uh, correct flow um, and and only really diverts uh, in very kind of extreme disruptions. Um, the, uh, the, 
the photograph is actually the timeline's way of communicating with the people in the universe how it wants the photograph to go. So the universe wants those children to exist, and it has a uh, it has a photograph from from Marty McFly. Uh, it has a photograph of Marty McFly's family that the universe uses to. Um, to communicate that to him, this physical artifact. Uh, and I, I wrote back, um, here's, a, here's, a, uh, here's a question. Does every photograph have this power? Is the universe com- c- communicating with all of us in every photograph, or is it just this particular photo and back to the future? And here's another one. Has it moved to digital photos and the, the concomitant exponential growth in the number of photos taken affected the time god's ability uh, I mean, the time god, the universe was what, what uh, Mark from LA was calling the uh, universe's agency in restoring its flow um, uh, ability to speak to uh, potential agents um, though digital photographs seem on the surface to be more ephemeral, uh, they're in fact more permanent, right? We have these, this infrastructure around preserving the integrity of digital information multiple redundant storage backups, um, you know there's a kind of intuitive logic to the disappearing family in front of the well because we accept other kinds of physical changes in photographic prints that we wouldn't in digital for example, colors fade in photographic prints when the prints are involved uh, are exposed to light um, because they're a physical um, uh, physical artifact, and physical artifacts deteriorate over time. Not so digital photographs, right? Digital artifacts. Uh, Forever wilt thou love and she be fair, uh, you know, says Keats. Um, so we have this sort of infinitely reproducible, highly durable um, thing that that photography has become and and it's become i i think if anything less ephemeral uh for it's not even for it's not all it's not being physical um so anyway this was the the short email exchange that i had with with mark from la that that uh you know it was a couple weeks ago but it it put me in it put me in mind of of this, right? Like the idea of a digital photograph's colors fading is is unthinkable. A digital photograph's color is is a particular shade of red, green, and blue, or or CMYK, or whatever. It's it's a known value, and that value is always going to be uh, always going to be the same. So we we are kind of we're we're in a strange uh, we're in a strange situation with these these things that are. I don't know, meant to be, or that, that seem like they're more ephemeral, but in fact, they're more durable. They're, yeah. I, think they're all, Go ahead. I, was, I think they're also durable in a, a kind of social sense that when you take a analog picture, when you take a picture using a traditional camera, you have to develop the photo. And then generally speaking, that photo goes into a personal collection. Maybe it's an album, maybe at most it's like a slide collection, but for the most part, distribution of that photograph is very difficult. If people want to see that photograph, they have to come see you or they have to, you know, you have to mail them a copy of that photograph. Maybe you you make copies of like the best picture that you took all year of your family. Maybe that's your Christmas card and that's the only mass produced photo of that you're going to take all year that's going to be be sent out in large numbers. But now when you take a picture, it's not only durable in the sense that it's difficult to delete because it goes to the cloud and it goes to Facebook and it goes to, you know, all these different places. But it's also difficult to delete in that once you share it, it becomes 
a shared experience. There's all these other people that you know that get to see these pictures too. That when you when you take a picture of the food you ate last night, uh, for whatever reason that people take pictures of the food they're eating that night, um, your friends get to see that too, and that becomes part of just that shared experience and just kind of gets embedded in their own internal memory. Even if you deleted the photo right away, it becomes this social experience. Yeah, and so it, so it's sort of preserved in the social. In the, in the mutual knowledge of the people. It's pre- preserved by a sort of consensus understanding of reality as held by multiple people and sort of backed up in multiple memories. Like, if you don't remember, you can ask somebody and they can tell you. Right. Is that what like you're if, saying? Yeah. Right. If Marty Mc, the, the, the whole photo with Marty McFly, because there's only one copy of the photo, it can change and that has this influence on the universe. But if for a digital photo that's been shared on Facebook, the picture, even if the picture starts to change... And because of Photoshop or the universe or whatever it is we're talking about, there's all these other people that have seen the photograph and could say, no, no, there were four people in front of the well in that photograph. And all of them Mm. had heads. (laughs) So I just, uh, I'd like to, there's uh, so many different directions to take this. One thing I wanted to point out is the irony of, I I just thought immediately of the, the Breaking Bad episode Ozymandias and the idea that people think that the episode Ozymandias can be copied infinitely in an infinite number of different times for totally free and that it will last forever and that its colors will never fade and that its impact will always be the same as it ever was, right? This idea that because the internet and sharing and seeding and all of the technologies associated with imagery exist, the, the, very, the very core message at the heart of this, you know, this traumatic Breaking Bad episode, uh, which of course is a reference to the Keats poem, right? Or the um, yeah, it's a, it's a Shelley poem, uh, where about like you know how nothing nothing actually sticks around forever. Um, you know, it, I, I'm not comfortable with saying that it never decays. We can perhaps live with the illusion for now, you know, because for all intents and purposes, on any time scale that we care about, it won't decay. But you know, give it a couple million years or whatever, and we'll see what happens. Things, nothing really stays around forever. And I think also is that a lot of lay people don't really understand. I certainly am one of them. The technologies involved in the preservation and transfer of graphical content from one. Uh, preservation format to another, which happens as technology changes. Um, I'd love to add to the show notes this pretty interesting article. It's pretty old. Uh, it's from 2000 and uh, what 2001 is when it starts, and it runs through 2007. And it's about the technical challenges of transferring Babylon 5 to DVD. Uh, the classic sci-fi show is notable for having special effects that were done on MacBooks for very cheap. Um, and as such, uh, there don't really exist uh, masters of the special effects that can be referred to as in terms of remastering or special editioning these things. And so you run into a ton of technical problems if the only source material you have are the recordings that exist for transferring it from you know a, a low re- you know from TV to low reservation low resolution recording media to high resolution recorded media to scaling and aspect ratio issues and information preservation. And all that stuff. So I can't get into the technical stuff about it on my own, but I wanted to link to it because I feel like I can't just sort of let stand that it is a simple problem to merely allow these images to last forever. But for all intents and purposes, Matt, what you said is right. These things last for a long time frame within our lifetimes. We don't really have to worry about them uh, being destroyed unless we neglect them or lose them, right? Which is something that could very clearly happen. Um, but I guess I wanted to talk about. Um, and one thing I want to bring up, and, and, and Ben is an important uh, 
important in saying that sort of the social understanding of it is. I feel like photographs are getting closer to film in terms of how they might be understood as a critical form of communication. Because photographs, like, nowadays, you know, you go out and you do something, you know, say that I go out to the duck pond and I see and I feed the ducks. You know, I take Snapchat. I send it to a bunch of my friends. Maybe somebody else sees a duck, takes Snapchat, sends it back to me, you know, and then I take a selfie and I put the selfie on Instagram about me, like, giving a thumbs up to all the duck brothers out there feeding ducks, right? And so there's a con- there are conversations that happen in the form of images, right? Images, be- images take on a much more longitudinal role in time. Right where it's like this ha- photo happened at this point, and this photo followed it, and this photo followed it. You're, it's almost like we're living in in comic books. You know, it's sort of sequential art. There's that idea of like, uh, you know, the kind of Hogarth engravings being the sort of you know kind of granddaddy granddaddy of contemporary understandings of these things. Kind of paintings in sequence, where you have movement from one painting to the other. You have passage of time or a passage of space or some other thing that connects the paintings. Phenomenons of closure, sort of how do we connect these paintings? How do we connect these individual images? That goes on to comic books and the sort of gap between panels and comic books being part of the artistic medium that you can play with and the craft of it and information that you show versus hide and how you communicate motion and energy and how narratives and identities, right? And then you have film theory and you have these ideas of, okay, you know, the sequential images that happen on the screen produce an illusion of permanence. That illusion of permanence is similar to the illusion of permanence that takes place in our social systems. The way, you know, film is like a human social system system uh in that you know this is it portrays us and the way that we regard ourselves on the screen is the way that our identities and cultures are performed and it dictates the power dynamics right and so yes like these images last they last long you know they they're endurant they're they're easy to come by they happen quickly but i think that they also are constantly interacting with changing with the society, with the people. I mean, society is a bad word, but the socialness, with social interaction. And in that sense, they are also constantly changing because the context in which they exist is constantly changing. Right? They're constantly, like, if I look at a Facebook photo that I posted, well, I can't look at anything I posted more than a couple years ago because I was off Facebook for a long time and I delete all my photos. But, like, you know, if, if I, you say I have, like, a weekend-long improv festival and I take a bunch of pictures during that improv festival, the context of me looking at one of those pictures later versus when I actually took it is going to be very different, right? And so, like, the in that sense, the sort of universe that contextualizes and preserves these images is the, is the social energy of the consensus, I guess, or, or whatever it is that's dictating, whatever authority there is that is dictating how people regard one another. Mm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think we're right to, to peg the, the rise in, in photography to the sort of rise in social networks, right? Like they, the, the ability to share photography, right? Because it's sort of, um, we're, we're almost all, we're sort of all that, uh, that boorish host now subjecting people to a slideshow of our vacation, right? We're all that person, um, uh, making everybody sit through pictures of us and, you know, and the, the things that we've done. I mean, in fact, we have like sophisticated mechanisms like Instagram for opting in to, uh, to other people's like boorishly insisting that we look at them. Um, you know, uh, and but it's also a friendly thing. You know, it, it's not necessarily so bad, right? Like I communicate. Like my sister just had a baby. Yay, my sister having a baby, right? And like, there's pictures of the baby that get passed around, right? And it's like, where's the baby? Oh, here's the baby. This is what the baby's wearing. This is where the baby's going. I don't mind it. I like it. It's my nephew. I love my nephew, right? Like, 
So I mean, yeah, yeah sure. Can, it's it's yeah. great. It's great when it's your baby or your nephew. You know what I mean? But when it's <laughs> when it's literally everyone else's uh, baby. You know, they got. I mean, like we're at we're at an age where a lot of people are starting or have started families, and so the the onslaught of of Facebook kid photos, you know, is in full swing, right? And like. Uh, you know, I, sometimes it's sometimes it's really great. Sometimes it's insufferable. I it, I don't know. It, it depends on the mood you you wake up in in the morning, right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to look at this change in the way that we deal with pictures, and it's easy to look at it and say that it and point out the things that are bad about it, the things that we don't like about it. But it's harder to admit to honestly the things that we like about it. I think for us and for and I think that that has to do with the sort of language of social criticism and also the sort of uh what is the mission of cultural analysis? Sort of putting right things that are wrong, kind of easing anxieties about change or uh, kind of being correct. Oh, I, I had always thought I had always thought it was uh, lamenting how much better things used to be. Yeah, <laughs> back when they were a, back when they were a different way. Except when things that are changing in ways that are necessary and important, and we have this preconceived Back to the Future esque notion that the future as it must exist is superior to the past that it must replace, uh-huh. and that the future as that the future as it must exist to an extent pre exists the past, right? Because the picture is there. The way that the universe wants things to work out is something that we aspire. Is something that we're so married to in our heads. Um, that we see the universe as leading towards it inevitably. And in that sense, it is the things that have happened in the past that are kind of the bad things, the abominations, the wrong things, and the things that happen in the future, which are the right things that are being restored. Right. right? The, the sort of the conservation is of a future that we, we cultivate in our own discourse. And actually, the, thing, yeah. the, 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 the rise in sort of digital photography gives lie to that you know, that kind of thing, right? Because a lot of that sort of future pre-existing in the past, it's, well, you know, whose future, right? Like, what ver- yeah. what version of the future, right? What what narrative of the future? And the, the, the fact that everyone is like a mobile publishing platform now um, can uh, give lie to or challenge, uh, you know, established established narratives established sort of paradigms of of the meaning of things and like the the rise of sort of of uh photographs shared on social networks connected with political movements of various kinds or of of different kinds of social protest all around the world um and how these things can can undermine or give lie to an official narrative right like a state sponsored or you know i don't know culturally sanctioned uh narrative um, right is is I suppose uh, a socially progressive move. Though it turns, I mean, though it turns everybody. Uh, we've talked about ways in which social media turns everybody into a marketer, right? And like everyone, you know, it turns everyone into a uh, it turns everyone into a, a photojournalist, but with without any of the training in the uh, in the the practice and the sort of the ethics of the practice. Well, there's there's the common refrain, you know, pictures or it didn't happen, which is, you know, very much the the kind of mindset of a mere person standing up and saying something occurred for many people is no longer proof because, you know, so there's a great uh, XKCD comic out there where it's like a graph of, you know, how how probable it is that Bigfoot exists and it's going steadily down as the line of people who carry cameras on them 24 seven Uh, goes up because, you know, in the last 20 years, everybody has a camera on them at all times. So if all of these 
if something outlandish like Bigfoot or a UFO or something like that existed, somebody would have had a camera on them when it happened. Because just statistically, that's likely to be true. But I think there's a bit of a problem because, of course, things do happen and there's no pictures to document it. They happen all the time. Uh, this this is very common. I, I've noticed with um, my fellow law students or other lawyers who will who will talk about eyewitness testimony as if it's as if it simply isn't evidence at all. As if someone standing up and saying this thing happened to me is completely irrelevant to settling the question, as opposed to physical evidence or pictures or something like that. Um, and in many cases, this is a problem because many bad things happen to people, and there aren't pictures available. Or the people that took pictures uh, and control the disposition of those pictures uh, have no interest in releasing them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, and and it would be like it would be a, a poor world indeed if we all like prophylactically walked with our cell phones at the ready, you know, our thumbs poised over the uh, over the you know d- shutter touch target, right? Right. I mean, or, unless you know, we had Google Glass and we could just do it with a, you know, we don't even have to, <laughs> you don't even have to hold your phone up. It's already on your nose, right? Or you have your iWatch or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're at a point, we're almost there. I mean, it could be, we could be there now, probably not culturally there quite yet, but we definitely could be there technologically in which images are just really commoditized, right? You Being able to produce an image to assert a particular story about yourself or something that you want to have happen, you want to say was true, you want to say was, tr- was, was the case about yourself, we're getting to a point where it's getting to be like a pretty trivial barrier to just like post pictures of whatever you want, right? Within, within restrictions that are not particularly meaningful. So it's like, you know, I mean, the, the, tipping, the, tipping, point for, well, the, tip, yeah, the tipping point for me, the, per, the time when I really realized we were really there, do you guys remember when Iran posted those pictures of those missile launches? Um, ben, do you remember this? Uh, I there don't was, know exactly what you're referring to. There was like a big newspaper headline of uh, where Iran, Iran, Iran released pictures of like a missile test. And it was really obvious that yeah 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 I remember this now. Um, it, we, I'll, I'll link to the show notes. It happened in 2008, and it was a it was an image released uh, on um, the week of July 10th. So almost uh, so like, yeah like 2008. So like six six years ago, uh, they released um, uh, the Iran Revolutionary Guard released images of a missile program that it was working on, and it was really obvious that they copied and pasted a bunch of the missiles. Right, like that, that was just the same missile copied and pasted a bunch of times, right? And even like the clouds of smoke were copied and pasted, and it was like pretty easy to tell it was fake once you looked. But it, you know, people do have to sort of circle the parts of the image that are fake in order to show you uh, that it's fake. You know, you have to sort of demonstrate it. And the New York Times article that I'm linking to uh, demonstrates that. And there were a lot of images that went around of like, oh, you know, here's a million missiles. Ha, 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 look how funny this is. And I think the, the big story was not that the Iranians were incompetent, that the Revolutionary Guard was incompetent by releasing such a crude hack attempt uh, at photoshopping to the media. It was how, how, how they really thought, how it was really their plan. Their plan was really just to Photoshop the picture that didn't exist, right? And and how close it is to being good enough for people to believe it, right? And the idea that, like, you know, you can look at a photograph now and it very well might not be real, right? Like, we haven't seen a real 
movie star's body on a movie poster in years, right? Like, and of course, you know, what is real? What does reality mean? Then it gets back to film theory and, and all this other stuff. But it's like, you know, the pictures that you see in the news, it, at the, where it is now is that you just have to wait long enough or search long enough to find the picture with Hillary Clinton with her eyes kind of crossed that you want to put in your newspaper, right? And it's like, uh, I mean, you know, the tabloids do this all the time. It's like, oh, look, Jennifer, Jennifer Anderson is sneezing. Right, and so like in mid sneeze, we're going to take a picture of her, and we're going to post that she's in the middle of a divorce, right? Because it's like, look at how awful her face looks. She must be in such pain, right? Like, uh, like that kind of thing. So now it's just limited by uh, what pictures you can manage to get that can be altered due to the limits of picture altering technology and the expense of doing it. Uh, but you know, this is going to get easier, and it's already you know. So what I'm just saying is that like you can live your best life simply by posting whatever picture you want, as long as you have the money to do it, right? And there's an interesting kind of discussion around, particularly in the journalism world, about what's acceptable in terms of editing a photo. Because I don't think anyone expects that photos must be posted 100% as they're taken. You know, everybody's going to tweak the colors a little bit to to bring out the focus or things like that. But then you have the – there was a controversy a couple years back about – it was a picture of President Obama on a beach – and it was on a magazine cover, and it looked like he was just kind of like standing by himself staring out at the sea. You know, it had this very kind of wistful quality to it. But the original photo, he's actually surrounded by like a huge gaggle of people, and he's like talking to the governor of North Carolina or something. It's just they zoomed in on the photo at the one time where he was standing like three feet away from anybody, and so they were able to make it look like he was all by himself on the beach. And there was a discussion around whether or not this was ethical to, to post this kind of picture. And that's obviously, I think, close to the line. But whether or not it's cross- crossing it is is an interesting question. We yeah. all the time on, on overthinking it will, like, Photoshop things together, you know, usually usually to create a humorous effect or a... a, a uh, or to make you think, you know, like uh, create an interesting effect by contrasting two images together. Um, there's, uh, you know, we do that kind of montage all the time. I mean, I would say that for us, it's more in the way, no one expects us to be a news outlet. It's more in the way of illustration. And the photo is is a kind of an illustration of an idea. Um, but like it's, uh, I, I think it's a difference in degree and not in kind. Um, right. I, in my Star Wars article that I wrote about two years back, I wanted to show the the army guy and the navy the imperial army and imperial navy guy like squaring off, but there's no actual frame in the movie where both of their heads are in the frame at the same time. So I just kind of photoshopped two of them together with the similar enough background that you can't really tell that it's from different frames. Right. And so it gives the impression that they're like staring each other down, but they're not. They're, you can't actually see that in the movie Star Wars. Oof. So yeah. so mea culpa. I'm, I'm sorry to to the audience that I've misled. Yeah, but the point is that like we're kind of living a comic book where you can put up whatever pictures you want in whatever sequence you want to tell the story that you want to tell, right? And that like that photographs, which had once been you know this thing that you had to sit for, or there was a distinction that photographs held a role of like a frozen moment in time, or this is the context of this particular photograph. There's a flow now, like there's a flow of photographs, and they're posted with a notion of context for when they're posted and also when they're going to be looked at. I think is a big difference, right? Like, and also you can take a photograph that someone else took and you can recontextualize it and you can repost it in the circumstances you want to post it. And by doing so, send a totally different message than about things than the first person posted, right? You can write your own comic book with panels from someone else's life, um, right? Which is not at all relevant to anything that happened this week. Um, 
Actually, I wanted to say one thing. I know this is all very depressing, but uh, well, I did something else that's sort of depressing, but is at least also additionally funny. Uh, there's a poem I know that kind of refutes the notion of the Back to the Future photograph. The idea that photographs that exist in pop culture or that exist to us in meaningful ways must in some way significantly reflect to us a way in which the universe ought to be. Right, because it's like, oh, if a, if a photograph really connects with you, then that means it has to mean something, and it has to show something meaningful. And I just like to read you a couple of quatrains of it, if it's, that's all right. May I? Please. <clears throat> Look at this photograph. Every time I do, it makes me laugh. <laughs> How did our eyes get so red? And what the hell is on Joey's head? And this is where I grew up. I think the present owner fixed it up, and I never knew we'd ever went without the second floor. It's hard for sneaking out. And this is where I went to school. Most of the time, it better things to do. <laughs> Criminal records. Yo, so this is the um, this is the uh, the second time in the six year history of the Overthinking It podcast that I've analyzed Nickelback lyrics, yeah. and it's the second time this year. So this is accelerating at an alarming rate. Like the um, like the number of photos taken, right? Like just yeah. the sheer volume of tonnage of visual images. Uh, the sheer tonnage of Nickelback is increasing. Yeah, and so but I think that this is this song, the song photographed by Nickelback, is one of the best proofs that Nickelback sucks, right? Because it's <laughs> like they, they have these photographs that to them are significant because they happened at significant times in their life, but the song doesn't succeed at all in communicating to you that these photographs are important. It's just like that just looks like it sounds like a stupid picture. Like why are you talking about? Like the great one is how did our eyes get so red? You know how your eyes got red because there's a flash, right? Like and it took a picture of you and you have red eye. Maybe it's because because you were smoking or drinking or something else, but it's like the idea that you don't understand why the pupils would be red in a picture leads to me to believe that you just have no understanding of what's happening, and this is just a random object that you're looking at, right? It communicates this societal sense of just unimportance to this picture. Um, and I think it also kind of roughly coincides with the commoditization and, and really the longitudinalization of photography. The, of photography really becoming something that happens in a series, in points in time, that you experience on a time frame that you can comprehend and know. And Nickelback is trying to be nostalgic about like the, the, sort, of, the sort, of, uh, sort of specialness and sacredness of old photographs at a time when photographs have become very readily cheap and available to everybody. Uh, and as such, it sounds, the song, song sounds Sounds like cheap and and useless uh, because of that and because of some of the prosodic choices that they've made. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is nice to know that no matter how much the world changes and no matter whom whom we respected that we lost and no matter what horrible upheavals and injustices happen to people around the world, uh, Nickelback still sucks and all is right with the world. <laughs> right? And, and God's in his heaven and Chad Kroger is <laughs> waiting for a hero to save us. Oh, good. Um, I, you know, your, your literary reference made me competitively seek out a literary effer- uh, reference of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is uh, from the masterpiece of a novel uh, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basily Frankweiler by E.L. Koenigsberg, uh, which I highly recommend to anyone, whether they are a young adult or a slightly yet less young young adult um but uh when um oh what's her name spoiler alerts for mrs basily frankweiler when when uh meg i think it's meg meets the 
or no, Claudia. I don't know why I thought Meg. Um, finally meets the titular Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler. Uh, she, she says something interesting. Uh, she says, the adventure is over. Everything gets over and nothing is ever enough, uh, except the part you carry with you. It's the same as going on vacation. Some people spend all their time on vacation taking pictures so that when they get home, they can show their friends evidence that they had a good time. They don't pause to let the vacation enter inside of them and take that, uh, take that home. So it's, it's good to remember that, that though the camera is, is always at the ready these days, you know, sometimes it's good to, uh, to put it down and, uh, I, don't, I don't know, interact with the world in a slightly different way rather than sort of capturing pieces, capturing pieces of it because there can be a, uh, even a, a, a yet more profound, um, you know, dividend that that, that that kind of experience pays, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, the Nickelback song that you don't write and just keep in your own mind is the best Nickelback song of all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, you want to talk to us about uh, the rising importance of digital photographs? You want to talk uh, to us about uh, the mixed up files of Mrs. Basley Frankweiler? You want to talk to us about Joan Rivers? You want to talk to us about Nickelback sucking? Uh, you can email podcast at overthinkingit.com. That's how this conversation got started with an email from Mark from LA. So thank you, Mark, for. Uh, getting us started on our chat today. Um, that's podcast at overthinkingit.com. You can call or text 203-285-6401. Call or text or SMS a, a photograph. I Actually, I don't know if the Google Voice number supports that. That would be an interesting thing to try. Uh, 203-285-6401 or join a discussion on the comments in, in the show notes. Let's, um, let's keep the comments free of the recent unpleasantness and, and go literally anywhere else on the internet if you want to talk about that or i don't know even in the forums or something uh we will be back with more overthinking it podcast next week until then visit us on the web at overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't Kitty stuff that happened in recent weeks. It's amazing that we never thought to mention the Avril Lavigne song "Hello Kitty" that we did an entire podcast about, like not just a few months ago, and that nobody considered consulting Avril Lavigne or Chad Kroger, her co-writer, on the song about Hello Kitty <laughs> on the massive Sanrio dystopia uh, associated with Hello Kitty. So, I, I perhaps it's very rare that a song by such luminaries falls into such obscurity while missing its time frame by like a mere matter of months. Kawaii. Kawaii. <laughs> <laughs>